This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Jos van Bierden about his book titled Inconvenient Heritage, Colonial Collections and Restitution in the Netherlands and Belgium, which has just come out from Amsterdam University Press in 2022. This is a really fascinating book that is incredibly topical um, because it discusses what should happen, what has happened, what could happen next in the debate around objects, human remains and archives that currently are in the places of former colonial um, metropoles, in this case, Belgium and the Netherlands, um, but obviously originally were from places that are now independent countries. Um, I imagine this book, its topic was quite uh, in the news when you started writing it. Clearly, you've been working on this for a very long time, and it's even become more in the news um, since I imagine you finished the book. So I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation on a lot of different levels. And so, Dr. Jos van Burden, I'm very excited to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you very much. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm Jos van Beurde. I'm affiliated to the Free University of Amsterdam. And in 2016, I wrote a dissertation called Treasures in Trusted Hands, Negotiating the Future of Colonial Cultural Objects, in which I depicted a broad general picture of the problem of colonial loot and, and colonial collections in, in European museums and private collections. And, <clears throat> and then um, and later on, I thought, I have to do something with Belgium and the Netherlands. Now, why, why was that? It basically, it was, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands, they often are not included or evaded a little bit in the in the Euro- Europe-wide debate about restitution. It's usually about Germany, the UK, France, Belgium, and Netherlands are neglected. But in the in in the time of the European colonial expansion, they were major colonial powers, and so and and you can see that also in the museums, both in both countries, that you know they have major colonial collections. That was one reason, and the other reason is that. In fact, it's linked to the first reason that scholars in in the Netherlands, they scarcely look to what is happening in Belgium. And the other way, scholars in Belgium, they scarcely look to what is happening in the Netherlands. And um, I remember in two years ago, we had a very important return of an object to Indonesia, more or less war booty. And... Then I checked with colleagues in Belgium whether they had heard about it. They didn't know anything about it. And on the other hand, in last year, I think, in the city of Antwerp, which is just across the border, it's close by, there was a fantastic exhibition on the Democratic Republic of Congo and their colonial links with Belgium. 
And I, I, I approached a number of Dutch journalists to write about it. They said, no, there's no need, you know, that's for the Belgians. But I think this is very, it's very narrow to do that. And, you know, so one of the purposes of the book is to broaden the view and to see what can we learn from each other. It was not to make a hierarchy between those two countries, but just, you know, what can we learn from each other and what's happening in either country. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, um, especially because it is surprising to kind of go, oh, have you heard about this? It's right nearby. And then the answer is, oh, I had no idea. That kind of creates a natural gap to fill um, and a very useful one to investigate. So I'd love to, um, through this conversation, explore some of the main points that you draw on um, in comparison and individually, um, and also over time, because I think that was one of the most interesting aspects of the book is this is obviously a very current debate. Things are popping up in the news literally week by week. But you show in the book that this isn't a new debate. This has been an issue pretty much since Belgium and the Netherlands stopped having these colonies since the countries became independent. So I was wondering if you could maybe start by telling us about what the discussions around restitution and returns looked like immediately after these countries became independent from Belgium and the Netherlands? Well, there was a difference because Indonesia became independent in 1945 and formally in 1949. And the Belgium Congo and Rwanda and Burundi, they had to wait until 1960-1962. Whereas the other two Dutch colonies, the Caribbean islands, and uh, Suriname, they had to wait much longer, even until 1975. So it started at different uh, moments in history, but still it's quite compatible because the the attitude of both countries was, you know, to to return as little as possible. Whereas from the former colonies, there had there there were claims from the start, from their independence, for the restitution of cultural objects. So in the beginning, you know, there was um, like Indonesia, I know in, um, they had prepared a list of thousands of objects in Dutch public collections, which they would like to get back. And uh, Congo also had very specific wishes. They had very specific, specific wishes. But if you looked at the negotiations, then you saw that the Dutch negotiators in 1975, they were doing as little as possible. And in the end, only a few hundred objects went, went back. And the Belgians even did it worse. They, <clears throat> they made, did it in such a way that they gave back objects which were of inferior quality and of lower quality than what the Congolese had asked for. And, um, um, and there was one of, the, one of the reasons was that Indonesia had, you know, a number of educated people who could negotiate with the Netherlands, but the Belgians, they had given so little education in Congo that there were just no people to do this sort of negotiation. So it was quite painful. And in fact, for both countries, for Belgium, it was that, you know, as long as they could hold, get, keep hold of their, um, of their mining interests, their economic interests in Congo, you know, they would every now and then they would give something, make a little concession. But then the, the, the cultural objects, they were used more as some sort of an oil to let the economic interest go. And, and for the Dutch, it was more. The Dutch, they had a very poor international reputation. 
because you know they uh, Indonesia the, the the between 1945 and 1949 there was a tremendous fight between the Dutch and the Indonesians and it was horrible the the, the human rights abuses which took place <clears throat> the violations and so they were and not it's hard to describe them it's coming up that's coming out now and so they had a bad name already because of that but there was another point that they the Indone- the Dutch tried to stick to to Papua New Guinea the the western part and Indonesia said no it should come to us and that was a big contradiction and you know it split the two countries and and the Dutch you know they one of their arguments to return objects was that they had to restore their international reputation as a generous former colonizer. And how then did that translate to policies around objects of restoring your reputation? Was it similarly like the Congo? We'll give you a few things if we get mining rights. Um, yeah, kind of what did that it, look it, like it in the Dutch case? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. You know, that. I mean, they were not really... I, I remember from, from the archival research I did that for the Dutch... You know, they always um, try to to maintain the principle of reciprocity. So if we give something back, they also will have to come with something. And they didn't have that vision of, of colonialism as a system of domination and exploitation, what we have now. And, you know, and, and nowadays in this whole discussion about, um, about restitution, the whole idea of reciprocity doesn't play really that much of a role. So far, we've been talking primarily about the governments involved, the governments of Belgium, the Netherlands, um, Indonesia, the Congo. But what has the role of museums been in when when requests have been received by the museums from the newly independent uh, governments? What have the museums done? Well, there was a very interesting thing in Congo. I said earlier that Congo had very little schooled personnel to, to run museums and a cultural service. So Belgians, Belgian people, Belgian um, academics, they were still running the cultural sector in, in Congo. And the, the director of the big Africa Museum in Tervuren near Brussels, you know, which is the major colonial museum in Belgium, he was nine months per year in Belgium and three months in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda and Burundi to run the museums there. So who was negotiating with whom? That was a very weird situation. And um, in the case of the Netherlands, and I, I know that uh, going back to Belgium, that uh, the director, Lucien Cahen, of this big museum in near Brussels, he was very much against restitution or return. And he said, you know, it will disrupt our collections. It will break the unity etc etc the same arguments were also used in the netherlands and um in the netherlands the the museum with the, the biggest collection which was going to lose most was the the ethnological museum in the city of leiden and this this museum director he had the same attitude he, he was constantly holding the brakes handling the brakes and trying to return as little as possible and he was even criticized by by high official of the dutch ministry of culture you know you have to be a bit more lenient a bit more generous and it, it was really it was a very hard time it was a bit embarrassing mm. fascinating um 
One aspect in terms of the museum response that you look at in the book is the idea of provenance research into objects. Um, Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that and how that relates to conversations and debates around repatriation of objects? Yeah, well, that's about the current debates. eh? Well, I think one of the major changes in the debate is the the change in in the view what is provenance research. And provenance research, say, in decades ago, it was just a list of owners and maybe places where objects had been exhibited, etc. Now, that has changed a lot. And now we work with a much broader concept of provenance research, um, which also takes into account, you know, how was an object acquired? Um, why did it come to the Netherlands? It, it's a much, who was making it? What was his function at the time? And so you get a much broader biography of objects, and which makes it much more interesting, but often also much more uncomfortable because many uncomfortable truths, they come out. And what can you maybe give us an example of maybe an earlier instance of this kind of research that maybe didn't take into these things account and how an example maybe of what that looks like today? Yeah, you, you know, for instance, the um, um, in the Rijksmuseum Amsterdam, there is a it has a ceremonial cannon, a weapon, of the King of Kandy in Sri Lanka, and um, it has been there since 1883, and it was taken by soldiers of the Dutch East India Company in 1765, and they, you know, f- f- via the Royal Cabinet of Curiosities it entered into the Rijksmuseum Amsterdam. And Sri Lanka, they have asked already in the, in the 1970s, uh, 1980, for its return. And they were just avoiding the issue. They didn't really investigate what was happening. And the Dutch government even argued, you know, that it was a gift, that it was given by, the, by one of the uh, high cultural authorities in Kandy to the Dutch governor general. And later on, it, it was just not true. So that's also one thing with the provenance research, which I experienced myself also, is that sometimes we have to read sources anew, to read them again, again, and again, to find out what really happened at the time. And nowadays, you know, the recent last year, an extensive report about the provenance of this canon appeared, and it's admitted it was just stolen, it was taken away. And so the, 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 the claim of 1980 was in a way was justified and would be justified now. And, and the Rijksmuseum is aware that it might have to return the object, that in the end it will go back to Sri Lanka. Whereas in the 1980s and 70s, you know, they just didn't think about it. And, and I've seen the, the correspondence between the director of the Rijksmuseum and the Dutch Ministry of Culture. They're just, you know, they're just ignoring it. And there's a, a European thing in this also, is that the European countries, Belgium and the United Kingdom in front, I think, they said, we are not going to give in to major claims. You know, we will do incidental things and otherwise not. And sometimes they criticize the Netherlands for being too generous, although in my view, they were not generous at all, but they were a bit more generous than, than Belgium and the UK. And um, so there was a general thing atmosphere in Europe not to give in to large claims. 
And why? Why was there a difference between incidental versus large claims in terms of policies around them? Because there, there was an attitude both in government circles and in museums that, you know, these collections are ours. They're, you know, they're part of our history. It's like the the thing what, what you hear from the British Museum every now and then still, you know, that they are part of our history as much as they are part from, from the other country's history, the country of origin. And um, we have taken care of them. More people have access here. We are better able to take care of them, to preserve them, to use them for research, and everybody is welcome here. Mm. Well, one other voice I want to add to this discussion, as you do, obviously, in the book, um, in addition to the museums in Europe, uh, the European governments, as well as the governments um, of countries like Sri Lanka, Indonesia, the Congo, are indigenous groups and diaspora groups. Um, How have they changed or adapted or evolved their approach to seeking repatriation um, over the decades that you look at in the book? Well, that's, it's hard to generalize on this. I know that in the Netherlands, diaspora groups, they are more involved in, you know, discovering new things about slavery and slave trade, about racism, discrimination, and less about cultural objects. In Belgium, especially the Congolese diaspora, they, you know, they are quite open about their criticisms that things should go back. And th- that is a slight, uh, quite difference between between the Netherlands and Belgium. And for, for instance, if you look in, in France and in the United Kingdom, in Germany also, these diaspora groups, they play a very active role in the restitution of objects. But in the Netherlands, they were involved in often in other issues. And one of the reasons is that, the for Indonesia at least, is that you know, what Indonesia has been claiming here mostly comes from Java and then from Hindu and Buddhist religious institutions. And the many diaspora people in the Netherlands, they come from minor islands, so they, they have less emotional attachment to these, to these uh, civilizations which existed on Java and on Bali also. So that might motivate, it might motivate them you know, not to, to, to do too much. Whereas, yeah, the whole Congolese diaspora in Belgium, you know, they, they are much more active. Mm, that makes sense. Um, I wanted to kind of stay on this idea of what is more or less motivating, um, because the book doesn't just talk about objects, um, even though those might be what we're most familiar with, the Benin bronzes, obviously, for example. Um, but you talk about two other things where there are similar debates around repatriation. Um, And so I'd love to kind of ask about why has there been less attention on the same issue of returning ancestral remains and colonial archives? Colonial archives, yeah. Well, colonial archives has been quite an issue between the Netherlands and Indonesia, and especially archives related to that period between 1945 and 1949. And why was it? Because these archives, they contained quite some incriminating information, you know, which which made both about the Netherlands and about Indonesia, and neither party wanted to to get that into the open. 
So there was a political interest in, in, in doing that. But they have been fighting about it and they have come to quite uh, a positive agreement already in the in the late in the 1960s. Well, that was the start of an agreement between the National Archive in the Netherlands and the National Archive, the Archive National in Indonesia. And they have developed, you know, they have created trust among them and developed quite intensive exchanges of archives. And whereas at first they said that um, um, archives, they belong to the successor state, you know, the, the new state, so to Indonesia, later on they have been quite pragmatic. And they said, especially, there were millions of pages of the Dutch East India Company, but these are very, very vulnerable. You know, they, they, yeah, they, they're vulnerable. And they said, let them stay. What we have in Jakarta, we keep in Jakarta. And what you have in the Netherlands, you keep there. So they have an agreement. They came out of it. Now, um, for Belgium and the Congo, I, it's very interesting. It, um, they had a different position because Belgium... They had control, they had in possession all the archives related to mineral resources, to economic resources in Congo and especially in, in Katanga, you know, which is a part of Congo which is full of mineral resources. And they, um, and Mobutu, especially President Mobutu of, of Congo, he said, we want to have them back, they are our stuff and we sh you should give them to us. And the Belgians refused that always and that was was a hard thing was a hard matter and um, now that is slowly changing because that that, that show that indicates also the change which is taking place now because if you look at the relationship between Belgium and Rwanda Belgium also had these ancient colonial archives about resources and so and now the, these two countries they have agreed Okay, we, we are going to exchange it. So it is changing. And I can imagine that um, uh, that the Democratic Republic of Congo at a certain moment will also accept that, you know, they only get a digital repatriation from the, from the archives, which are mostly in Brussels, and that they will content, be content with that. So to what extent do you think digital repatriation is a good option or is it just a good enough option how does that play in well it, it i mean for objects i don't think it's an option uh, let alone for ancestral remains you know that, that's a total totally different category but for archives it can be an option if the country of origin is happy with it and my impression is that um, these archives in Brussels, I spoke both with the uh, with cultural authorities from Rwanda and from the, the, the state archive in Belgium. They said, you know, they also, they are so vulnerable. And I think Rwanda thought, well, let Belgium do the, the, the work and pay the cost for, for, it, for their maintenance, which is quite, it's quite expensive. As long as we have access to the information and the current government of Rwanda is very much interested in, in economic information and not, you know, whether they have a bunch of old papers in the house. So it differs, you know, it differs. And sometimes it's um, countries are more eager to get also the, the, the papers back, you know, so they can keep them in their hands and feel what it is. But it, it differs per country. 
Could you maybe tell us about the efforts with Suriname's archive and yeah, to that, what extent you think that's been a successful? Yeah, that's very, that's, yeah it's very fascinating. You know, I, I always, it always makes me happy to read about it. In 1916, so over a century ago, the colonial administration in Paramaribo, the capital of Suriname, and the, the, the Dutch administration here in the Netherlands, they signed an agreement in which they uh, stipulated that all the archives from Suriname would be transferred to the Netherlands because of the humidity and, and other reasons, poor preservation uh, options in Suriname, but that they remained property of Suriname. So that means when Suriname became independent in 1975, it was their property. And when the situation, you know, was okay, had improved, they would be returned. And, you know, it, it's, it's quite interesting that in 2010, you know, then there was a, a cooperation between the Netherlands and Suriname and a totally new archival building had been constructed in Paramaribo. And then the first parts of the archives, they were returned. And I think in 2018, you know, all the other archives, they were returned. And um, so that was a very nice example of, of sticking to an agreement. And it was quite exceptional because I don't know of any other um, any other example of this in, in, uh, in the world. Mm, very interesting example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to pick up on, um, we've touched on so, it. To, to st sorry, to stick to this, they sure. they digitalized the paper, and, but they first had a discussion because a number of people in Suriname said, because, you know, there were many family records, private letters and this and that and it. They said, you know, um, th these archives should not be digitalized. But about half of the population of Suriname is living in the Netherlands. They're Surinamese Dutch people. And they need this access, you know, to, to get to know their own uh, history and their family's history. So they needed that digital. So there was a, a little fight, but they solved it. And now they have digitized all these, these uh, information and it can be used by both sides. Mm. And it's used very intensively. Mm. I imagine, yeah, especially given where the populations physically are. Um what about then, we've talked about um, ancestral remains being really a different category in a lot of ways. Um, why has that been less a focus of discussion? What's the sort of way that that debate has changed over the years? Yeah, yeah, I think there are a few reasons. You know, the, the objects, yeah, they're more touchy. You like to see them. They appeal more to people. And archives are just, yeah, pieces of paper. That's interesting. Uh, sorry, ancestral remains are bones. And, you know, these collections, that's another reason is that they are so huge. You know, it's hundreds of thousands of pieces of human beings. And often we do not know where they came from. Or then you have a collection of bones and it says uh, New Guinea, Papua. But Papua has, you know, I mean, it's many, many times bigger than the Netherlands. It has many ethnic groups. And you cannot give something back if you do not know from whom it came. So that, that was very painful. You, know, you see that in other European countries also, that in Germany they have skulls. And they don't know, did they come from Namibia, from the genocide there, or did they come from 
uh, Tanzania, you know, where a similar struggle took place, and they don't know to whom to return it. So um, many of these uh, former colonies, they are, they say, well, keep keep these uh, um, ancestral remains because we do not know either what to do with it. So in that sense, the Netherlands and, and also Belgium, we are having a big problem of what to do with these collections. Mm. And um, yeah, did, did I answer your question? Because you were yeah. asking, you know, why why they... Uh, so it has to do with, with this fact that um, they appeal less, that was important. And it was ook de magnitude, de volume. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it's impossible to handle. And the difficulty in identifying. So even if both sides are saying, we should give this back, how to actually do that is not particularly clear. And of um, course, after, after the Second World War, this whole um, department of physical anthropology, you know, it was cut back to, to the most necessary things and not you know, to 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 make a hierarchy of, of human races anymore. Mm-hmm. And there was the 1951, the, a very important UNESCO step was to abolish the notion of race. You know, there are no races. There are certain differences between people, but to say that there are different races. So this whole this whole effort of, of, of collecting ancestral remains ha- has been undermined. Now, I, I want to add one thing to this, if you, if you don't mind, that in the past I always spoke about human remains. Until I was criticized by colleagues from Africa, they said, you know, human remains, it almost feels uh, as if you're talking about things. And they argued, but this is about our ancestors. This is about our people. So since then, and I do that in the book also, uh, I have been talking about ancestral remains or remains of ancestors or like like that. And mm. I think that's an important clarification. Um, and I, I was glad to see it in the book. And I'm glad you made a point of mentioning it um, in the interview, because I think it sounds like a small thing, but actually makes a really big difference and changes how things are thought about. So, And they said another thing, never start provenance research into ancestral remains without consulting us first and that's you know in the whole provenance discussion it's so it's we spoke about it earlier and the whole concept of provenance research has become much broader but also provenance research has also to do with power and the the communities of origin they want to draw that power to themselves and that they can do you know what is necessary this episode is brought to you by shopify Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hmm. And in some senses, that kind of brings me to um, a question I wanted to ask you about when we talk about restitution or reparations for this kind of thing, um, especially in Europe, there are kind of obvious parallels drawn between what happened with um, art that was taken by the Nazis um, and the very complicated procedures and processes of reparations and restitutions um, after the Nazi regime obviously fell. Um, to what extent 
do you think that is a useful comparison? What can we learn from that when it comes to thinking about colonial repatriation of objects? Yeah. Well, first, let us look at the differences, because the differences are huge. You know, the Nazi loot took place during a limited period of time, only in Europe. Um, It was part of a genocide, you know, which makes it different according to international conventions and so on. And um, uh, the, the, the claimants are much easier to identify. With colonial collections, it's much longer ago, you know, it's over five centuries that this European expansion lasted. It started with Portugal in, in 1415. And um, so, and, and there's much less evidence. You know, there are, no, there are no written sources about it. So claims to be made for colonial looted art or looted objects is much more difficult than for Nazi looted objects. But the point is that, and for a long time, the two have remained separated. And I remember in my um, in the beginning, I, I mentioned my Treasures in Trusted Hands, my, my dissertation. And there I have the, the Washington Conference principles of 1998 to deal with Nazi looted artworks. I have adapted them for colonial loot. And I remember that my, uh, my promoter and some other uh, legal experts whom I consulted about said, be careful with it because they... The, you know, Jewish organizations, scholars, they won't like it. They're not used to it. But I thought, you know, both are examples of historical injustice, which have to be faced. And if you treat one category of those loot differently from another category, it, it's an inequality in the law. And that's, I mean, it's not, not acceptable, quite simple. So, you know, one thing is that we can ask for a principled equal treatment of, of claims for colonial looted objects as for Nazi looted objects. And the other thing is we can learn from how uh, descendants of claimants of Nazi looted art have joined forces, have, you know, have started concerted efforts and, and lobbied, you know, to, to get their things done. And I think that former colonies can learn from it. And I know that in, in, in certain Africa, African countries, they were making this comparison between Nazi looted art and um, uh, colonial looted art already decades ago. But we didn't realize it. That's also why, you know, we have to reread text and to read again and again. And in Africa, they were thinking about it already for a long time. They said, what is this? Hmm. So that's my answer. Yeah, there, there's some comparison that can be useful, but the differences are <laughs> not small. Um, no, they're so not small. No, and I say, you know, in, in principle, you can compare them, but in the implementation, it's quite different. And one thing which I hope is that, you know, you see nowadays the last 10 years uh, tendency in, in de- dealing with Nazi looted art that things end up in court, that things end up in the United States in court, you know, because the descendants have more chances there. And I sincerely hope that for claims for colonial looted artworks, they will not end up in court because it's, it makes it very expensive and very impractical and you Mm. won't make much progress. So I'd love then to turn to some efforts that 
might be better options than being in court for a very long time. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us about the Benin Dialogue Group and whether that could be a better model for repatriation. Yeah. Um, well, it's a long story. It started, in fact, early in this century when um, curators of the, the World Museum in Vienna contacted their colleagues in, in uh, Nigeria and in the Benin Kingdom. And um, they wanted to set up an exhibition, which was to travel from Vienna to Berlin to Paris and Chicago. And in the there was a beautiful catalogue with it, about 300 objects. And in the catalogue, the traditional king of Benin, the Oba of Benin, he had written a preface. And he was asking the Austrian people to have the magnanimity to return some of these Benin objects. He didn't say all, some of them, because we don't have them. And the answer from the Austrians was no, was a flat no, because they said it's state property and they're discovered by, by a law for inalienability. And their colleagues in, in Berlin and in Paris and Chicago gave the same answer. But I know that one of the curators in, in Vienna, she felt really uneasy with this and they kept talking with each other. And, uh, you know, in 2007, this exhibition was held. And in 2010, a first meeting took place between the cultural authorities from Nigeria, that's from the federal government and from the Benin Kingdom, and a number of a few museums in Europe, in Vienna, in Berlin, Stockholm, I think, and, and a few others. And they, on their agenda, were basically two points. You know, that was cooperation, which in practice was capacity strengthening in Nigeria. And the second issue was restitution. Now, since 2010, there have been a number of meetings, and, but they didn't really make progress. It was a bit embarrassing. You know, they didn't make progress. And the Nigerians, they were really unhappy about it. And they thought, you know, we just want the Benin objects back. And we don't want to have endless dialogues you know, which lead to nothing. And to their disappointment, what happened in 2019 was that the some of the museums, they proposed to skip the aim of restitution. And the argument, and the Nigerians were upset. They said, you know, even the only thing we want is even given up. But the museums here said, I, I remember the Pitt Rivers played an important role in that in Oxford. The, the museums here said, we have to skip it because now the slowest in the process is deciding about the progress. And the slowest was the British Museum. And um, they said, if we want to make progress, we have to do it at a bilateral level. So since 2019, there have been bilateral negotiations between the Pitt Rivers, Cambridge University Museum, um, the National Museum of World Cultures in the Netherlands, German museums, and that eventually has led to quite some progress and to restitution agreements. So th that's about the process, and I guess most of your listeners will know about the Benin objects, you know, that they were captured by British soldiers in 1897, and uh, uh, thousands of them, and that many of them were auctioned, 
and you know to to pay the costs of the expedition and that uh, as a result of this auction and other uh, events they were distributed all over Europe so you find them everywhere and many uh, themselves respecting museums thought we should have at least one penny object or several of them but you know the last couple of years and it started with with Cambridge and Aberdeen University in, in the UK um, they have decided to return them. And what happens then is that they return the property rights of the objects. And then after that, they start negotiating with Nigeria. Nigeria will in indicate the new owner which objects can stay in the museum where it comes from and which ones will go to Nigeria. Now, can this be a model? I think it can. And Although at first I, I really was hesitant, but I've become more enthusiastic. And I know, for instance, if you look how collections from the Ashanti in Ghana, how they are distributed over, over Europe and North America, even more so if you look at collections from the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, they're not only in Belgium, tens of thousands in the Netherlands, 30,000 in Scandinavia, in, in, in Germany, etc., then it might be good, you know, to combine these efforts and to to have this uh, a, a similar discussion. So I think, yeah, it might be worth to to apply the model model to other cases. And of course, you have to look at the the peculiarities of each case. That's that, but that's obvious. Mm, of course, but at least there's something to look towards that shows um, change and. Obviously, as we've both mentioned, um, there's a lot happening with decisions being made uh, really right now um, as we're speaking. And so I was wondering if you could give us sort of a brief um, idea of what the current governments of Belgium and the Netherlands um, think about this issue. What's their current stance on it? Yeah, well, uh, Belgium, I think, is the most interesting. And why is it? Because they have accepted the law and it has been accepted by the parliament which lifts the inalienable, I always have problems with that word, the inalienability of state-owned objects. And in normal circumstances, they are not allowed to, to give them away, but they have said that objects which are proven to have been stolen during the colonial times, they become the property of the country of origin and countries of origin for Belgium are free, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda and Burundi. And Belgium had more colonial possessions, but you know, those are excluded. But so that was quite a radical measure. And it's the first country in Europe, which has a generic law, you know, lifting this inalienability. Whereas in other countries like Germany, they have said that, you know, they will um, uh, uh, return the, the the property title of over 1100 Benin objects that's only about one category France is doing the same they have to they have to make a law for each you know they gave uh, materials back to Senegal and to the Republic Republic de Benin um, which is neighboring Nigeria but they always have to make specific laws whereas in Belgium it says if it is proven then it becomes the owner, the owners of uh, the the country of origin becomes the owner of it. Now that that's quite radical, 
Now, the problem, what I see is that the, um, the Africa Museum in Tervure near Brussels, the big museum, they have defined 883 objects as proven to have been stolen during colonial times. So they become the property of Congo. But they have another number of objects of which they do not know it, and that is 35,000. Now that's an incredible number. And to do provenance research into these objects, you know, it's, um, it's nearly impossible. So what requires that is that Congo needs a strong infrastructure, something like a restitution committee, which defines the wishes of Congo and saying, I know they are doing it already. And they have pointed to one region in their country from which they have almost no um, object from the colonial time and the Yaka region and they have asked Belgium begin to focus with your provenance research on that and include some of us so that you know we can do that research together that's um, that's Belgium <clears throat> now the Netherlands is, is um, slightly different um, the discussion was was a bit stronger here more advanced I would say but the Netherlands has not made that law that generic law, but they have uh, come with a new policy for dealing with colonial collections early last year. And that said, basically, you know, what has been stolen should go back if the country of origin asks for it. And that is also the position of the current government, but the, the parliament still has not approved it. But I, in my feeling, that won't be much of a problem because, you know, through all these discussions, we have started to think differently about about this whole matters. So, the, but the thing in the Netherlands is that um, you know the former colonies, that means Indonesia, Suriname, and the Caribbean islands, they will get back these objects if they want them unconditionally. So we cannot put conditions. How are you going to preserve them? What will you do with them? To whom will you return them, etc. But countries that were not Dutch colonies until their independence, and for instance, Sri Lanka or Congo, there the return is conditional. And conditional means there are basic two conditions. One is that um, the, Dutch, uh, the Dutch government has an advisory committee and they will judge and decide whether an object is of more cultural importance for the Netherlands than for the country of origin. That's one. And the second is that they will study the ability of the country of origin to preserve and make public accessible such an object. Now, so there are two, two categories of countries. And, and I feel that in my contacts in Asia and Africa, the second, you know, this conditional return that has created, yeah, even indignation, you know, that so saying that, you know, they're still trying to control our processes. You know, they, they admit now that they have acquired it in improper ways and still they want to decide how we deal with it. And so that, that in their eyes, that is a weak point. That makes sense. Um, thank you for giving us such a helpful summary of kind of where we are at the moment, what could be happening next, um, sort of things to look out for and where you think things might go in future. Um, and that really just leaves me with my final question, which is 
now that you've helped us understand the current and future um, work of the Belgian and Netherlands governments, um, could you maybe tell us, since this book is now out, what you might be working on now or next? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, I'm, I'm doing two things. Um, I'm making, with a colleague in Sri Lanka, I'm writing a major piece on the, the whole process of the provenance research in relation to that ceremonial canon of the King of Khan. That's one. And the second is, I'm doing research, and I want to publish about it, about missionary organizations and restitution. And the first one is almost finished, and the second is loads of work, because there's almost no information about it. Well, I'm sure that um, that makes it even more fascinating in some senses to work on, but definitely quite a lot of work. Um, So best of luck with both of those projects. Um, And listeners can read the book that we've primarily been discussing while you are off doing that. The book is titled Inconvenient Heritage, Colonial Collections and Restitution in the Netherlands and Belgium from Amsterdam University Press in 2022. Dr. Jos van Burden, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. And the book is available in open access. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's absolutely true. It is available in open access. Very helpful, yes. It is very helpful. Um, All of the chapters, the whole book um, is available open access through Amsterdam University Press. Um, So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Thank you for reminding me. So definitely encourage the listeners to take a look.